Welcome to The Real Birth Podcast, the show where real parents share real birth stories and get really honest about how it went. You might be a first-time expectant parent, or on your eighth baby. Perhaps you're a birth worker, or maybe you just love learning about birth. Whoever you are, you are welcome here. This podcast aims to educate and empower listeners through the real stories of mums and dads. I'm Lucy Hill. I'm a doula, a mum of a toddler, and a complete birth nerd. Join me as I invite all kinds of parents to share their stories of pregnancy, birth, and beyond. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to another episode of The Real Birth Podcast. This week's guest is Andrea, whose son Bodhi was stillborn at 30 weeks gestation. Andrea suffered from endometriosis and after two failed rounds of IVF, she and her husband Sam found themselves unexpectedly pregnant naturally. But at just over 29 weeks, Andrea noticed that Bodhi had stopped moving and immediately knew that something wasn't right. It is every parent's worst nightmare to be told their baby has died and this episode is understandably very emotional. Andrea is one of the most resilient, honest and brave women I have ever had the honour to meet. After Bodhi's death, she and her husband Sam made a conscious choice to live good, full lives in their son's honour and Andrea went on to donate her breast milk to help care for sick babies who needed it. She regularly raises money, donates to charitable causes and makes positive choices because of Bodhi. One of the things that helped Andrea and Sam after Bodhi died was the arrival of a gorgeous French bulldog, Marley. I visited Andrea at her home, not far from me, so you'll hear Marley having a good old snort away in the background, which personally I love, as he is such a shining light in their lives and deserves to be featured. This episode is extremely honest, raw and open about stillbirth. If you're not feeling in a good place to listen to this right now, that's okay. Please just skip this episode and come back when you feel ready. I believe it is so important to share all birth stories. It was a complete honour and a privilege that Andrea has shared Bodhi's memory with me and by extension all of you too. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you fall in love with Andrea as hard as I did. Welcome to the podcast, Andrea. It's so, so lovely to meet you and thank you very much for submitting um, your story of Bodhi's birth. I would love it if you could tell me a little bit about yourself before we get started. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, um, I'm Andrea. This is my dog, Marley, that you'll be able to hear. Um, my little <laughs> French bulldog, who is my tiny baby. And um, uh, I'm married to Sam and we also have two cats called Habibi and Jasper as well. Before we start talking about your pregnancy and birth, what the road towards getting pregnant was like for you? Uh, it was a it was a long, complicated road. So, um, always known I'd wanted to be a mum. We always knew we wanted to be parents. And then um, uh, I have health issues. Um, I have endometriosis and I have adenomyosis. And Sam has some that kind of get in the way of, of these things as well. So we tried for a couple of years. Nothing really happened. <sighs> Went to the doctors and um, they decided to send us down the IVF room. Okay. Um, so we did two rounds of IVF. Um, the first round um, just failed, which was excruciatingly painful at the time. But in context later on, um, it was sad, but mm. they were worse. Um, then the second round, um, we did get pregnant and we were incredibly excited. And then um, about seven and a half, eight weeks pregnant, I started hemorrhaging really badly. Okay. I ended up spending um, the best part of a day in hospital, about 16 hours in hospital, but they finally did um, an emergency DNC because they were waiting on blood for me because I was hemorrhaging so badly. Right. So that was 
all of that and then we left it we decided we won't have any more children we won't we won't try for any more children we'll okay. just we'll, we'll, we'll you know carry on as a childless couple we were fine um we donated our embryos um to somebody else who could use them and then in October so all of this happened in 2017 uh, and then in 2019 I decided to donate my eggs because it was the last time I'd be able to do it because of my age so I did a round of eggs to somebody else so that they had nine of my eggs that they could use wow. and then um, the day that lockdown started um, in the 23rd of March 2020 I remember being at work and thinking oh these feel like implantation things um, that's funny um, only I would manage to get pregnant during an apocalypse um which is what I told one of my friends and then I kind of forgot about it two weeks later I realized I hadn't had a period checked my app on my phone and realized that my period was late took a pregnancy test and there it was Crikey. so it was a very long very convoluted journey that is a real <laughs> roller coaster and just can I ask as well about donating your eggs that's so selfless was that just something that you knew you wanted to do because it, it was, could help somebody or yeah so it was mostly I thought mine aren't being used I've yeah. got plenty and they're really healthy yeah so there are plenty of people who can't get pregnant for that reason and just because I can't use them I thought it would be good for somebody else to be able to use them but also I'd been through so much trauma with the the miscarriage left me with quite a lot of PTSD yeah um I was really quite unwell after it and um it left me with a bit of a hospital fear so I thought going to do something which was only going to have a positive outcome for somebody else mm-hmm. I thought would be a really a good way of kind of getting myself some closure yes um on quite a lot of issues so it was kind of like a a whole wound thing as well yeah but also by that point with my endometriosis I'd got to the stage I had so much pain I'd asked for a hysterectomy so they said they didn't really want to do it till I was closer to um menopause yeah when you do a round of IVF and they do an egg collection they take quite a lot of your eggs so they kind of bring you closer to menopause so it was kind of a a little bit of a means to end there was quite a lot of things involved in it but Oh, that's really yeah. interesting. I didn't, I didn't know about that. Yeah, because so. they, they mature about thirty follicles a lot of the time, and then yeah. they take as many as they can. It so. makes sense because yeah. if you, yeah, if you're removing the eggs and then you know de- depleting the reserves and exactly. that sort so of it's thing. a good few years worth. Although yeah. I've had mine tested since, and they're still quite high. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh my gosh! So you, you know, been through this big IVF journey and de- sort of made your peace with not pursuing that any further. And, and then, then had to come all the way back. And then you to find it. out you're pregnant completely unexpectedly. What was that? What was those first kind of few weeks like? Did you have to completely bring yourself back around to the idea of of going through all of that? Yeah, yeah. it was it was incredibly stressful because obviously we were really you know we'd completely changed our mind on it. Um, we knew we still wanted to have children. We just didn't think it was ever going to be possible. So we just kind of had to change our mindset. But given that it was at the very beginning of a pandemic as well, where we were in lockdown and we didn't know where money was coming from and there was quite a lot of kind of stresses, but we still agreed, you know, we will we'll, we'll do this, we'll just, but we'll take every day as it comes because we've been through so much. We'll just take every day as it comes and just kind of see what happens. Yeah. Um, it was, it was, you know, it was nice because a lot of people were very sad and being able to give them good news was really lovely. Yeah. And a lot of people were so kind of over the moon for us as well. It was nice to be able to be a little kind of light in the dark, really. Yeah, so. yeah. Having kind of discarded this idea and then now having to think about pregnancy and birth, what had you thought about for your own birth? And did you have any kind of preconceived ideas about 
what you wanted and what might be possible? Well, I had an idea relatively early on that it would probably end in a C-section. Okay. Mostly because um, I'm a lot smaller than my husband. Okay. I'm five foot two, he's six foot five. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I kind of had an idea that it would probably end in a C-section, but I was... I tried not to think too much about it because I think it could be quite scary mm. to think about what's going to kind of happen at the end. And um, I knew that he'd been born early because he was so large as well. Okay. But I wasn't particularly afraid of kind of anything. But I just had this idea that a C-section would be highly yeah. probable. Um, just out of curiosity, having two partners that are very differently sized, is that something that would indicate something like growth scans to check how big your baby is? Or was it just something that occurred for other reasons that you checked how big your baby I was? I think ordinarily, uh, not in COVID, we probably would have had a few more checks, just given my health conditions and yes. um, his size, etc. Um, we did end up having a, uh, an extra growth scan quite late on, um, I think it was 28 weeks, Okay. because I was polyhydramnios. So, so is that excess water? Yes, okay. lots of excess water. So I was really, really big, and when they measured, he was on the 90th percentile as well, so he was obviously really big okay. as well. Okay, so that must have been quite uncomfortable. <laughs> yes, especially in a heat wave. <laughs> yeah, okay. So how did the rest of your pregnancy go? It was relatively easy going really I mean we were incredibly nervous through the whole thing I remember going for the first scan and having to go in on my own which was really nerve-wracking yeah um and then just straight away you could see this little beam just bouncing around absolutely everywhere and um it was really reassuring I remember crying um because I was so excited to kind of see him on there and um see him kind of bouncing around I remember also thinking he was a girl for a really long time (laughs) is that like an instinct thing um and um I felt really awfully sick from as soon as I found out which was about six seven weeks I was so sick I was literally led on the sofa every single day I could barely eat I was having kind of a smoothie and a kind of stupid day and that was it and luckily it was lockdown and I didn't have to go to work yeah. back to work so it was about 11-12 weeks so I was that was quite handy did, um, did you find the sickness just kind of gradually got less well or? it actually stopped about two days before my first scan which really really worried me because yeah. it was a very sudden stop um, I went from unbelievably sick um, all the time and really bad like trap wind and everything to it just suddenly stopping and I just I mm. panicked um, hugely um and then obviously went to the scan and it was fine. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So as your pregnancy like progressed, um, did you kind of have plans to go into labour naturally? Yeah. 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 I, I kind of wanted to let everything go its courses as much as kind of possible. I did realise once I started getting quite large that probably wasn't going to be an option. Yeah. So how did that, how was that managed, your excess water? Is it just is something that they keep an eye on? Is there anything they can do? The problem was, because it was COVID, I had far fewer face-to-face things. Mm. I remember speaking to somebody at about 20 weeks, because it was just a phone thing, and saying, I think I'm really a lot bigger than I should be. Um, Because I'd measured myself, and I remember thinking, that's a lot bigger than it should have been. And she said, oh, no, it'll be nothing to worry about. And then I didn't see anyone for another few weeks. And then when I went in... And they measured me. They said, actually, you are a lot bigger than we'd expect you to be right now. So I had gestational diabetes tests, which okay. were fine. Okay. And then they sent us for a scan. And I remember, because it was 22nd of September, so it was Sam's birthday. We went in, we had a scan. And I remember thinking that she didn't scan the cord, but she scanned mm. him. And I remember her saying, 
I probably should just scan the cord. Don't worry, I'll do it when I see you next week because we planned when we going back okay. the following week. And so, how many weeks were you when you had this scan? So that would have been twenty nine weeks. Okay, when I had that scan, so it was twenty eight weeks that they realised that I was grossly bigger than I was. Not much larger than yeah. expected. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then they just said, you know, polyhydramnus is a thing that happens. Um, Sam's mum was polyhydramnus with him. Okay. She ended up leaking fluid, which is why he was eight weeks early, because he right. just kind of, they had, had, you know, she just couldn't cope anymore and it just, her waters break and that was yeah. it. So he was also uh, about six pounds <laughs> eight weeks early. Wowzers. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, they were just going to kind of monitor it week by week and see how it went. Okay. So you mentioned that at this scan, this particular sonographer said, oh, I probably should have scanned the cord, but I'll do it when I next see you. So I assume that that is something that has stuck in your mind for a reason. Yes. If this, this was sort of about what, 28, 29 weeks, um, when, when you then went back... Or did you go back to that next scan? Is that the point at which things took their turn and you realised that they weren't they yes. weren't well? So we didn't make it to the next scan. Um, okay. So that was on a, I think it was a Thursday or something. Um, and then we, basically I'd been out with friends for lunch. We'd gone out on a Sunday, been out with friends for lunch. And I thought that he wasn't really moving as much because he was a very active baby okay. and I thought he wasn't really moving very much so then I came home and I said um, I didn't think he'd be moving very much but in the car on the way home he'd given me a mighty kick that I'd even said oh baby cough that really hurt yeah um because he did used to do this great thing where he would turn around a lot and then he'd kick me in the ribs and then he'd yeah. kick me in the cervix and it was great. Yeah. And it was one of those, one of the really strong ones. So then got home and I said, you know, I'm just going to have a fizzy drink, just wake him up a bit. And I um, had a fizzy drink and nothing happened. So he said, okay, I'm going to go and have a lie down. I had a lie down and he still nothing happened. And it was always an instant. As soon as I laid down on my side, he was up and about and mm. kicking and spinning. And... That's generally the advice, isn't it? Like a cold, sugary yeah. drink, yeah. lie down on your side and then see yeah. what you can count in like 15 minutes or exactly. something and he was always so active like I, I could tell straight away that something was different mm. so I rang the midwife and I literally I, I probably led down for about two minutes um I thought I'm not giving it any more time no you know so I rang the midwife and she rang back like instantly by the time she rang back I was already crying I was like I know that something's wrong mm. so she said that's fine come straight over went straight up to IUH we were barely waiting a minute and they got us straight in and they let him in as well which wow was one of the I first was times. that was what I was going to yeah. ask is how your husband was treated through yeah. this so he, he came straight in every nothing else he didn't attend any other appointments at all that was the first appointment he'd attended Gosh. for anything so even you know when we found the baby's boy all of these things I had to do on my own and you know had to find bring out his little slip of paper with it on and did that make you feel really nervous that they'd let him in or, I was did, or did you not consider it at that point in time was it yeah. just not in your mind on the way over I was quite worried but I think they must have seen the state of me when I got there and just let him in and that was it um and then he was there then you yeah. know the whole time um so yeah, so she started, she got the Doppler out, put the Doppler on, and um, he was always a little bit awkward to find, um, yeah. I think had an anterior placenta, because you could always hear my um, heart rate as well, okay, and yeah. I could tell the difference between mine, because his was obviously so much faster, mm. so every time they Doppler'd, I was like, oh that's me, oh no, that's him, so when she started looking for it, I was like, oh no, go down there, he'll be down there, and then I kept hearing mine, and I knew mine was faster than normal because I was so stressed, but mm. I knew it was mine. And at one point, she kind of looked at me and we made eyes and made like a kind of a knowing look, but didn't say anything because we didn't want to panic Sam. We knew that we're kind of medically kind wow. of minded, so we kind of knew that 
but we didn't say anything and she said right I just need to go and get a doctor we're just going to do a scan yeah. so he went got get a doctor it took a little while um, brought the doctor into the room who immediately turned off the screen so I think they already had oh. an idea because they'd left the doctor on the whole time and still nothing so she scanned and she was really methodical she's really friendly she's really lovely and I've scanned the whole way over and then um, this is where I'm going to cry <laughs> the words that you never forget when someone says I'm really sorry I got in a heartbeat and I remember kind of wailing and saying, I can't believe this is happening. Um, and then you just kind of pull yourself together a little bit. And you just kind of say, okay, what happens next? And then they have to confirm with the second doctor. So we had to wait then, because the other doctor was in surgery. Um, so, um, doing an emergency C-section. So we had to wait, and it was quite a long time. And where so, did you wait? Did you stay so in we the same room? In the room. Okay. Yeah, they just they left us in the room. Um, they were really lovely, you know. They bought us a drink, and they were, you know, so kind and like this is not well the doctor, not stenographer, the doctor, and the midwife, um, who was called Hope. Um, they gave us um, a massive hug and sat with us, um, and then kind of left us to it, and then. Um, we rang his parents who were on holiday. His parents are always on holiday when someone is in hospital. They were on holiday when he broke his ankle recently as well. Some, sometimes it's just... just always the way. Always the way. It's always a Sunday as well. And we tried to call my sister, but unfortunately she just had some bad news from her friend as well. So she hadn't answered her phone that night. And we just kind of sat and waited. So doctors came in and did another scan and confirmed. I'm really sorry. Can't find the heartbeat. Um, and then I said at that point, and I said, I can't give birth to him. Yeah. I'm not going to be able to. Did your mind quite quickly go to those practicalities yeah. of yeah. logistics, practical? I'm a very practical person, yeah. and I know I, I knew I just needed to hold it together because I knew this wasn't the end of it. I knew that no. there were more steps. It's it's such a common coping mechanism. Yeah. I think you know what is the logical step that I can do next to be useful, yeah. and then it's almost like once I've gone through all of those steps then I can fall apart completely exactly yeah so what were the next steps once you've had this absolutely unimaginable news so they took us round to um the forget me not sweet which is lovely it's such like it's really well thought out so we we kind of went around to the rest of the maternity unit so because some hospitals don't have a suite for this at all um, we're lucky the IOH does. Um, it's really nice. It's um, you're far enough away that you don't really hear babies crying. You do occasionally, but nothing major. Didn't see anyone else who was pregnant. Didn't see other babies. Anything. So you're straight into this room, and it's lovely. You've got like a big double bed. You've got a fridge. You've got a microwave. You know, you've got kind of everything that you could right. possibly need and stuff. And um, it's beautifully decorated. I remember being like extra enough that I asked them to remove the um like read things because they were too strong like yeah yeah something you know it's still being very difficult (laughs) strangely I'd actually packed my bag and Bodhi's bag that week I'd literally only done it that week um so we'd taken them with us because I knew that it was something major yes I I knew one way or another he was coming out um and I said that um before we even had the scan I said one way or another he's coming out now your intuition yes so strong and I knew obviously I knew the the minute I had implantation pains so I knew the first minute I was pregnant and I when they did his post-mortem they said the time he died which was when he kicked me in the car so I literally knew his his first moment and his last moment which is just I'm so grateful to know that and to know that you know they were the two the beginning the very beginning the very end so sorry to backtrack a little no, bit. It's fine. Um, no, do you know what? I'm I'm going to leave this question. I'll, no, no, it's I'll, I'll fine. leave it. No, it, it, it was. I was going to ask about 
whether you received an answer as to what happened and why Bodhi died. Yeah, so well, in in a way. So in the post-mortem, they um, basically had found that there was a, there were remnants of a blood clot in the cord. Okay. Um, so that's why I was annoyed later that they hadn't dopplered the cord. Okay. Because I wonder if something else had gone on. However, the thing that was actually the cause of death was a, a very sudden stop of oxygen to his brain. So it was an instant. It was a very, very sudden. They can see that the type of injury it was, that basically oxygen was very suddenly withdrawn and um, it was a, a hypoxic ischemic. So it was like a clot had, had, had done that. It had blocked the, the artery and suddenly caused a loss of oxygen and then his brain had just died and it had just been instant. There was no preamble to it. There wow. was no kind of loss of function or anything else and there was nothing wrong with him. Genetically there wasn't a thing. Um, the one and only thing that they mentioned that was different on the um, post-mortem is that he was missing a rib on one side. It was actually apparently quite common. So How unusual. Yeah, and that was it. Other As than in that, quite common for babies or quite, quite common, common in humans. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that we just miss one rib on one side. It's an anatomical kind of yeah. thing that happens yeah. so but other than that there was nothing there was nothing my placenta um apart from um there was a slight sign of infection yeah. but there was quite a long time between when he died and when he was born so they think that that was why it could have been afterwards yeah. yeah and i had every test possible um for kind of um clotting and things like that um you know lupus everything i mean i think i gave something like six vials of blood and there was nothing absolutely not a thing yeah so yeah i mean did was it ever mentioned or brought up that that person didn't scan the cord did I you did say that? about it so um i went to an amazing consultant called joe fike who was just she's just brilliant i'm just gonna put this on I've, I've met her a couple of times she's actually just um brilliant she's yeah. scatty but amazing yeah absolutely amazing and she i said that to her and she said we will never know but my instincts having done this for a long time is no she said the type of injury that happened mm. I don't think that this was something that had been working its way towards it yeah. I think it was just a sudden freak thing yeah. but she did say however if we ever do get pregnant again we will be scanned pretty much every two weeks wow. and dopplered every single appointment and by her wow. not by kind of anybody but by her so she knows that she's done it kind of perfectly yeah. so you know that, yeah. that's that's will put my mind what, at, yeah at and and to hear that there was nothing that you did or could have done exactly must be well it's yeah. something to hear isn't it and yeah. to to not you know, make it worse yeah <laughs> you know because you because you, you kind of don't need that pressure but i also needed to know that it wasn't as well like if it had been something i'd done i would always feel awful but i do think in a way if if it hadn't been lockdown, I probably would have been seen face to face more. They probably would have picked up on the size of me sooner. And I think the size of me and the amount of fluid probably realistically did have something to do it in the end mm. because that's probably it caused the blood to slow down in the cord, which probably is what caused the clot. Probably has something to do with it. However, there's no changing it. And you know, I was so nervous about um, having a stillbirth. I have several friends who've had stillborn or neonatal deaths. Really? And I've spent the whole pregnancy thinking, it's not going to happen to you. It's such a rarity. There is no way that it will happen to that many people you know and to you. And I remember reaching 28 weeks and thinking, right, he's viable now, you know, and I, I settled down, you know, I got a lot calmer about kind of everything. Um, There's such a big. Um milestone when you get to that kind of even 25 26 weeks these days with viability and you kind of think well now if something were to go wrong we could 
Exactly. You know, that the NICU teams are so incredible. Your mind doesn't even go to the point where that's not an option. Yeah. Because I just, I I thought that he would probably be early just because Sam had been early. And obviously because I then had polyhydramnius as well. So I thought, okay, he's viable now. He'll be fine. I know he's already in the 90th percentile. We'll be fine. And I, honestly, by that point, it never crossed my mind that stillbirth would, would ever be a, yeah. a, a thing yeah. that would ever happen. So, because he was one day before he was 30 weeks when he died. So, yeah. Yeah, 29 plus 6 when he died. So when you had had the confirmation from this second doctor, were they? was it at that point they were able to tell you any information about when he had died or was it later after when you it had your post-mortem? Post okay. yeah. Because obviously I knew that he'd moved that day. Yeah. And so I knew that, because I think we got to the hospital probably about 6. But, you know, it wasn't late in the day at all. Um, um, so I knew it'd only been a matter of hours because yeah. of the fact that I'd felt him in the car. Yeah, of course. So you mm-hmm. you were moved to... Um, sorry, remind me what the oh, bereavement suite... The forget-me-not suite, yeah. yes. Um, and were you kind of assigned a particular midwife at that point? So we had... Um, um, I think it was Hope that came in then as well. So we had, we had someone who came in overnight. They had quite a few students in as well. And they kept bringing the students in because um, obviously they don't really get yeah. to see this kind of thing. And how did you feel to... about students being Great. involved? I've, I'm, you know, I, I'm a trained hygienist. You know, you have to be a student in medicine. You know, I'd had a student doctor take blood from me the week before. I'd had student midwives the whole time do bloods. Like, you have to learn mm. on somebody. And I'm not, uh, you know, I've, given, I've had blood taken and I've done IVF. I've done everything. Like, I have no... I'm not bothered about anything. Yeah. If you're gonna do it, just get on with it. It's fine. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but um, but so yes, yeah, so, you know, I'm and you know, I know that I'm not difficult in any way, and I know that I'm comfortable with everything. Mm. So um, I'm not gonna give them an awful experience, even you know, in there's an understanding like there, that. isn't there? Yeah. Of you have to learn about this, even yeah. though this is literally the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Yeah, you need to know about this because somebody else is gonna benefit. And Sam has this way with people where he makes everybody laugh. Mm. So I knew that that would then kind of be quite good for them as well because it would take the tension away yeah. I think if we were extremely serious about everything all of the time that's quite difficult to kind of deal with and he doesn't do serious and how and how was your husband during at this point once you'd been transferred over to this different suite you knew what had happened and I imagine we're now in that awful space of working out what to do next yeah so he it was very comforting he was more worried about me really than anything else at that stage um when we'd had the miscarriage before I, you know, I'd, I'd been in a bad way, um, and he was just so worried about me and that I was going to be okay. Yeah. Um, I remember we took a couple of pictures of the bump, um, kind of their hands on it and things, yeah. um, just for kind of you know memories. And then they, you know, we had people in and out for like a while. Um, don't know if we met Bex that night, but we had kind of people in and out just kind of explaining things. And doctor came in to speak to me and kind of said, you know. This, these kind of your options. Um, I'd said that I wanted a C-section, and, uh, and was that given quite readily as an option? No, they no. didn't want to do it. They wanted me to to have him naturally. They yeah. said it's better for you in the long run to to do that. They said sometimes your body will just kick on on its own. Sometimes it won't. Um, it didn't. <laughs> they gave me. Um, a pessary about two o'clock in the morning. So after the conversation with them, you did agree to an induction for a natural yeah. delivery. Okay. It wasn't. It wasn't really what I wanted, but I understood. They did. They explained it very thoroughly. You know, yeah. it's better for you if you can. Um, you know, recovery is obviously easier and things like this. Um, what I didn't know at this stage is that he was still breech because um, he used right. to kind of switch from breech to the right way. Yeah, you mentioned he was a real turning upside downy yeah. baby, right? So he was breech, and um, basically, in the end, they said he probably never would have 
probably would never have been able to deliver him. It would have been awful, I think, yeah. if I had gone into labour because obviously he wasn't going to have been any assistance whatsoever. So yeah. it would have been very difficult. Um, you know, and he was a big, big boy as well. Really? So yeah, and obviously, you know normally everything would have kind of softened and stuff beforehand and I obviously haven't had that because it wasn't you know none of the hormones had kicked in so it would have been next to impossible so um but it it was a long road to get to the point where we got to the c-section so how long did they sort of attempt that induction for before everybody kind of threw their hands up and said let's just let's do the let's do the cesarean so I think I had two pessaries and they kept coming to check my cervix and it just didn't move I think I went on to a drip as well in the end yeah um and nothing I I think I only ever got to about one centimeter dilated and that was it um just wasn't doing a thing I he did drop though quite drastically to the point that um I was even trying to go to the bathroom when it was impossible um because I just couldn't walk I was just waddling around um and then I remember, so that was the Sunday night. My sister joined us on the Monday morning and they let her stay the whole time wow. as well. It was the Monday night, Tuesday morning. I got up to go to the bathroom the night. My sister was asleep on the floor. Sam was asleep on the bed. And I started having a little chat with him um, in, the, in the bathroom, which actually, strangely, the day before he died, I'd sat on the sofa and I'd had about a two hour long conversation with him and I cried through the whole thing and I was telling him all about Sam and how much he loves plants, um, like my job and like telling him just about loads of different things, weirdly, um, and spent a long time crying, talking to the bump. And then so I then had a conversation in the bathroom with Bodhi and I said, right, you're going to come today. I said, whichever way it happens, you're coming today. I was like, we can't keep doing through this because we'd done the whole of the Monday sat in there just waiting for something to happen and having my cervix checked and having, you know, them getting food for us. And, you know, it was, they were lovely and like we had good conversations and we laughed a lot because we were just trying not to be too serious. You've got to. My sister kept walking around and making all the pictures wonky because she didn't really annoy me. <laughs> and, um, you know, they, they were they were fantastic and they kept bringing us like their coffee that they keep in their locker because the stuff that you know they and it just provided was awful and things like this they, they kept bringing us like special coffee and things like that mm. they were fantastic but I said that's it today is the day you're coming today and there is you know there's no two ways about it mm. um and they've been fantastic you know the consultant my consultant who I'd seen for endometriosis before she'd seen my name on the board and she'd seen what happened and she came literally running in in floods of tears and flung her arms around me and she again talked through why a natural would be better than a c-section but she said ultimately it's your decision I've been told that day by another consultant that if I did go into labour they would literally put a fentanyl drip on me and I would be able to control it he was like you don't have to feel anything he was like we will do everything for you you don't have to feel anything like you know whatever you need and then it was another consultant again the next day and I said to her look I've had a chat with him we've decided it's going to be today Mm. she said what do you want to be the cutoff point today she said we've got kind of morning surgery she said it's going to be difficult to get you into the morning surgery now seeing as we put the drip in at two o'clock in the the pessary initially at two o'clock in the morning we've been checking over 12 hours let's wait till two o'clock this afternoon and if nothing's changed then we'll do the c-section yeah um, you know, went through the risks and whatever again, which we'd done kind of a hundred times. I said, okay, that's fair enough. We'll give it another, you know, however many hours and we'll do that. We got to two o'clock, nothing. I think by that point, I just hit one centimetre dilated. So clearly not going anywhere. And then, so yeah, so 
had a good talk about kind of everything and I said you know I didn't really want to be conscious really for it I'd really like to be under some station when it actually happens um which they did um and they were amazing so they um yeah came to collect us um wheeled me around to surgery um I had an epidural great yeah I love that <laughs> very crunchy yeah um and then I remember them putting the painkillers into my hands and it really really hurting and I said right I want to be made fuzzy now please yeah so then they gave me um some midazolam and you know put me under so Sam was sat by my head the whole time so you did know. you were you kind of conscious at all or did you have no like, I have no like idea a really heavy station next. where you don't yeah, yeah it was really heavy but she brought me back up very quickly so okay they, they had to drain three litres of fluid off of me before they could do it because there was so much extra fluid so yeah three litres of fluid um and then um and then and they had my and they said that he was in um what they would call the buddha breach because yeah. he was literally sat had his legs crossed yeah um and sat on them yeah and obviously i'm relatively narrow as well and mm. big baby breach you know all of those things together they did say in the end it probably wouldn't have been able to have come out anyway yeah. and it would have ended up leaving me in such a mess if, if you know yeah so um so yeah and then so then they brought me back around again so um there is a picture of Sam holding him next to my head because mm. um, they weighed yes. him um, and they put a little hat on him because they said it's just a that's what they do they always put a hat on yeah. you know to keep babies warm and they just do it automatically even if they're not alive they just put the little hat on and then so they brought me around and there's a picture of me I've literally got one eye open <laughs> like looking at him and kind of reaching for him when he was on mm. Sam um, and then that's when I could feel them kind of putting everything back together and it just felt like bubbles oh, really? <laughs> as wow. they were putting everything back together and um and so, and then I remember being kind of in and out of it for a little while, in recovery, and then, um, and then they kind of came because they they told us, you know, that there was things like the cold cot, and mm. that we had the choice of kind of bringing him home or not, and um, that yeah. that wasn't like a definite decision. We could change our mind at any time. I and... was going to ask you about. So I imagine before your surgery, had somebody sat down with you and yes. explained all the different things that might happen afterwards, and and what options you had yeah. so bex the bereavement midwife is the most amazing human i've ever met in my life she's absolutely amazing uh, sadly i've had other friends who've had to kind of have dealings with her since as well mm. um but i mean i'm always grateful that if anyone has to go through anything that we went through that they have bex because she is just the it's, best it's an extraordinary career yeah and she's just she's just great at what she does and she's just very caring but matter of fact like Mm. you know these are the details this is what we need to go through but she's very gentle with how she delivers it but she gets everything in I think sometimes in a position like that some people can be so concerned about upsetting you that they probably leave stuff out or but she just too sympathetic does the whole thing she's just fantastic so she'd been through everything we'd already discussed kind of funeral arrangements and she said that they have their kind of butterflies bereavement um kind of facilities there and um nothing had been mentioned kind of at this stage about kind of I think I brought up kind of milk donation and things um but you know she she'd said you know that the you know we can put you in touch with people for kind of um pastoral care and you know, absolutely everything yeah. she's been through the whole thing and she said you you can have a cold cot which you can take home and um, so can you just explain a little bit about what that is yeah so cold cot is basically um it, uh, it's like a refrigerated is you plug it into the wall and it's literally just like a moses basket and um it's got kind of um cold mats all around it and mm. all inside it and it's just it's basically just kind of 
preserve things keep, keep your baby for as long as you kind of need to um and then that gives parents the option to bring baby home for a bit doesn't yes, it rather than exactly. worrying and yeah, it gives you kind of as about... long as you want kind of in the hospital before they kind of go off as well so they they, they did not rush us at all we could have stayed in there as long as we wanted after he was born basically for me they just had to get me to the point where I'd been to the toilet and I'd been able to shower yeah. and then I was allowed to be discharged after the c-section but we could have stayed as long as we wanted in the forget me not sweet it would have been absolutely fine um, and we would have been allowed kind of the cold cock for him kind of the whole time and yeah. they they come and they check on it the whole time and it's just literally just to kind of preserve him really yeah. like as long yeah. as possible give you some time with him yeah so how did you make that decision as to whether or not you would bring Bodhi home and with that information in your mind, did it kind of affect how long you stayed at the hospital or? Well, we we talked about it and we kind of decided that bringing him home would, it would bring associations into the home. Yeah. Um, at the moment, we've, we've still got baby stuff here, mm. but it's baby stuff. It's yeah. never been Bodhi stuff. So the clothes, the baby clothes and stuff we had at the hospital with him, quite a bit of that we dressed him in which he then was cremated with. Um, and the other stuff that he'd had at the hospital um, ended up um, in his memory box, which yeah. we've got upstairs. So um, that the stuff that was associated with him kind of stayed with him. You can keep yeah. that as his, yeah. Whereas if we bring him in here, then everything is associated with him, and it does make life a bit difficult, really. Because yeah. you do have to be able to move forward in life, and if absolutely everything you have is associated, it's very, very difficult. And obviously after big things like that you don't want to make a huge decision like moving house or anything yeah. because you know you're not in the right frame of mind and you you know it's just not the kind of good time so that's why we decided to stay in the hospital with him um and we never really made a decision on how long it was going to be because by the time we kind of so he was born at um, 19 minutes past three um on um the 29th of september and every single day since <laughs> i see 19 minutes past three for whatever reason, I can be in the middle of treating a patient, I can be doing any kind of thing, but for some reason, I always seem to look mm. at the time, at that time, and it's really bizarre. And then by the time we kind of got back into the room and got settled, um, it was about kind of six-ish, and then we got to about six o'clock the next day, and I'd been able to have a shower, I'd been able to go to the toilet, and we'd taken a lot of pictures and talked to him, sang to him, went mm. a story, and that's when we decided, yeah, mm. that was... You know, long enough. Yeah. And had any of your family been to meet him? Yes. So my sister, she'd come up the next day. And she should come up the Monday morning. Um, as soon as she turned her phone back on, she'd come back up and she'd been with us like, the whole time. And then they did allow Sam's parents to come up as well. It was quite a brief visit because obviously it was COVID. But they did come up and they had a little cuddle with him as well, which was really nice. To be honest, I was on a lot of morphine after we'd been born. So I was very in and out of consciousness. Um, uh, I think I was in quite a lot of pain given how big everything had got. Um, yeah. It was all quite kind of inflamed and everything. And um, so I was quite kind of in and out of things. Um, so yeah, it was kind of about 24 hours really yeah. that we spent in there. And um, when they took us into the room, um, this, she was amazing. The nurse came in and um, she bathed him for us. Because um, wow. we had the option to bath him ourselves. But... I obviously wasn't particularly mobile, and Sam, having never bathed the baby, hey, he wasn't small. <laughs> so how much did he so weigh? So he was about six pounds. Six so, pounds. Yeah, there was a lot of baby. Weeks. Yeah, wow. yeah. Because they, because they said, you know, we can take a lock of the hair, we can take 
handprints and footprints but she did say I have to warn you at 30 weeks there might not be any hair yeah. there was a lot of hair and wow. he has his dad's hairline where they his hair literally comes all the way down to his eyebrows as well yeah. there's a lot of hair um, so we do have a look of his hair as well um, and we have the hand and footprints which she did all of that for us and um, she was amazing and like dressed him for us and everything as well and yeah. took lots of pictures and you know the next day they, they took lots of pictures as well and um, yeah we had absolutely loads and Sam had his favourite board shorts with him and took pictures of he took all these really hilarious pictures with his iPads in the cold cot with pictures of us and his parents and his friends in the cold cot with him so that he's got kind of memories of them together and, yeah um, yeah there was an awful lot of an awful lot of pictures um, we had, they had like their own album kind of thing like hundreds of them literally and uh, we've got kind of one on the wall up there which is yeah. he was in his sans blanket yeah. so sans give you a box um, it's got two blankets in it and it's got two teddies in it so one goes with baby and one you can keep so there's a picture there with him with his teddy in his blanket with us um, and so in that box frame is also the teddy um, the other teddy and the other um, blanket as well and then the other ones went with him so but that was really nice and then there's the aching arms bear as well we were given okay. an aching arms bear which um they're lovely and i donated a few of those bears and it's just um it's literally something you can cuddle in kind of moments yes. and then um on the aching arms bears there's someone another baby's um name okay. where someone else has donated it oh, okay. so i'm actually in contact with the mum of the little boy who's on our little bears um oh name tag so you know we talk on, on our anniversaries like yeah. we have a little kind of conversation oh, it's been nice to feel that thread of connection in those moments yes yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's because that was so that's the first point at which i started making starting to mm. be able to kind of make connections with other people who've been through the same thing mm. um so um sans the the charity it's the stillborn and neonatal death Support or society? Support, I think. I want to hands, I can't remember. I should have rehearsed that. Yeah. <laughs> um, were they some? Were they sort of like a presence that were there, just introduced to you at the hospital? Or? Yeah. When we were given the boxes, when we were kind of introduced to them, and I have kind of used their online tools um, like since. So you know, they are very good. Um, just even being able to read stuff online is just very very useful. Yeah. And um, I was part of um, one of their. Um, uh, like forums so you chat to other mums who've been through kind of similar things and it's just a way of just being able to share your pictures and share your stories and just yeah. kind of look after each other really so yeah they've been very useful I, I, we probably haven't used them to their full potential but you know there's so much there like they do do support mm. groups that you can go to face to face because I imagine there's a very different feeling when you're sharing things like photos in your story with a group of people like that versus yeah kind of just putting it out there perhaps on your own social media or to your yeah. friends and family it must be quite a different feeling of you do have to be a little sharing. careful kind of which ones you share and um Rosie had blisters on his hands and his feet um, and his testicles because uh, of the way he'd been sat because um, okay. he literally had his hands on his legs yeah and sat cross-legged um, like this so there were some pictures where those are sh- that you can see them and I, you know, I try not to show it too much because mm. it can be a little bit disturbing really mm. to see things like that on some of the sites as well you see babies 16 weeks and people putting yeah. up pictures and obviously that is quite distressing yeah. um you know Bodhi looked like a full-term baby um pretty much um so we were lucky in that respect but a lot of people aren't so it's it's good to be able to kind of share those things mm. you know I'm happy to share him anyway because I'm very kind of open and because he looks like a full-term baby like I'm not worried that I'm gonna 
going to upset people, but it's nice that those places are a place that anyone can yeah. share, whether you're not the sharer or, you know, you feel your picture is too distressing, you can share it, no judgment at all. Yeah, is... because I sort of have, you know, I follow quite a lot of, um, like, birth photographers and people like that on various social media platforms, and lots of them do share um, pictures of, uh, you know, preemies or stillborn babies or even kind of early miscarriages. Yeah. And it is the, the reaction that you get from sharing a picture like that is, it's like so shocking to people that you could share a picture like that. I just feel like people aren't that we're just feeding into that taboo yeah. of no we don't talk about that and no we don't yeah. share that and I feel, I feel the same but obviously not everybody does so I don't want to make people yeah. uncomfortable for the sake of it don't get me wrong I'm happy to you know push it a little bit but I don't I don't want to some people are just a bit quite precious yeah it's, <laughs> it's a fine balance as well though yeah. about what you're willing to share and what what you're willing to take as well yeah yeah so I wanted to ask you I know you touched on it a little bit about your decision to donate your breast milk which I mean you've already donated your eggs and now you're donating your milk and I just feel like you are the most incredible woman I've donated quite a lot of my body parts now yeah it could be a lop off an arm next (laughs) um well it kind of got to it was I think it was even before he was born and I remember just saying what happens to my milk because I'd, I'd become quite aware um, you know, got quite large boobs anyway. They'd got very large during pregnancy, and then I was quite aware not that long after he died that obviously hormones were starting to kind of tell my body that it needed to do something different yeah. because my boobs just suddenly got much bigger and much harder and much more painful. And I just suddenly went, What do I do about this? And they were like, Oh, it's actually now too late to take the tablets that would dry you up. Wow. I was like, Oh, okay. Because your body doesn't get the message that you have to stop the milk yeah. production so you will still have yeah yeah your, your breast milk will still start to be produced um and then transition into that kind of full milk so yeah. so I was already well into that stage so it was too late to stop it um I kind of wish I'd asked before but there was just so much going on and because obviously we went in, in the middle of the night I think it's just something that either somebody had touched on it and I just hadn't clocked it or it hadn't been touched on because there were so many other things I honestly right now I wouldn't know for sure but when I found out that it was too late to stop it I said oh that's fine I'll just donate it then because they did say you know you can just kind of let it go naturally mm-hmm. like if you don't do anything you just kind of have to um if it doesn't get pumped at all it will just kind of stop on its own things like that and I said no no, no I'll donate it um and then I wasn't given any more kind of information so it was actually once we got home that then I thought right I'm going to do something about it because by that point they were like concrete basketballs I couldn't yeah. move my arms and you know a bit of wind on them and it would set them off like it was absolutely ridiculous so I researched and then I found that the Southwest Milk Bank is based in Southmead and they do the entirety of the Southwest yeah so I emailed them and they got back to me very quickly um I'm pretty sure her name is Marion and she said all we need to do is some blood tests for you so that we can just check your kind of bloodborne virus status and then we can kind of go on from there so and in the meantime did you have to start pumping so that you could keep that supply and demand thing yeah. going and not to risk the milk stopping exactly. entirely yeah so um the day that I decided to do it was I think it might have been my birthday which is the 5th of October that I decided to start doing it uh, Sam decided to buy me a cow onesie, which was great. I'm oh my god! 
As I said, he likes to bring humour to every situation. Okay. <laughs> um, I already had a pump that my friend had given me. And then so on the day that um, Olivia, the midwife who came round, the, the commuter midwife who came round, she um, came to take off my um, dressing, off my C-section and to check me and to check that I was getting on okay with the um, blood thinner injections and things. Um, I said to her about it and so she took the pump and showed me how to use it. So that was the day that I started... Um, pumping then and you know when I first started pumping it was barely any coming out at all it was literally like 20 mil or something but for some reason I was quite reactive so when I decided to start doing it just a bit more frequently it actually turned into the best part of a litre a day quite quickly Jesus I know it was because I actually only really did it for about three weeks in the end yeah Um, I actually stopped on the day of his funeral which is 22nd of October because at the funeral my friend offered me a glass of wine and a cigarette and I said yes damn right (laughs) so um, that's the day I stopped so it really wasn't very long that I did it for at all and when they came to pick it up it was over 5 litres of milk which was just insane um, the amount that came out and then in the weaning off period because obviously I knew I needed to just kind of taper off um, we went away for the weekends after his funeral and we actually met someone at a service station I'd arranged on the human breast milk Facebook page to meet her and um, we literally because she was adopting a newborn baby um, who's called Hazel and I've had pictures of her since um, so we met at a service station it was like some dodgy drug deal and she gave me a little plant to say thank you and I gave her a little cool bag full of a couple of pints of, of yeah. milk which was still quite um, orangey coloured at that stage it was still quite rich yeah. but you could see that it, it wasn't quite as much as, as at the beginning but um, yeah. it, it was still quite quite good and I, I kept some and I made a ring did you? So, that's um, one, this, yeah that's yeah, gorgeous this ring is um uh, it is resin made from my breast milk. I've still got some in the freezer as yeah. well. Yeah, I, I actually wish I'd kept a bit of mine. Yeah, I just I've just got one little bag full yeah. of it. So um, yeah, so it was it was easy to do even during a lockdown. Um, I did have to go and get the bloodborne virus test, blood tests. Um, not the best um, experience on my part, but normally I imagine it would be quite easy. That was just nurse error that she didn't read my notes okay so was there a communication error there and yeah okay i think it is it is quite a common thing that um they don't deal with baby loss well on gp computer systems okay as far as i'm aware gp computer systems they just put a flower like a blue flower on your file but i don't think it comes on every page uh-huh. um which means she didn't check my notes thoroughly and then she said to me your baby must be two weeks old now and obviously that set me off she was mortified she was really upset yeah but it shouldn't have happened the same as i got a text message saying you need to bring your baby in for your first vaccinations even though i knew that they'd had the stillborn paperwork they they still sent that out and so i rang them and i was very cross indeed i bet and um they were you know they were really good the practice manager was brilliant and she sorted it out but i said you know you need to make this better you can't be the only person that's happening to no exactly you know and i've said you know i'm stronger than most people um a a lot of people that could have been a last straw for them yeah you know that's not on that's not very good and actually i spoke to bex about it and she said she was going to look into trying to make the system better so that doesn't happen to other people yeah good how did it feel knowing that you were donating milk and kind of sitting there and physically letting that milk go from your body I mean it's an incredible thing to do and so so generous and important and I wish more people knew that you could donate breast milk Um, but that must have been a was it a really was it just kind of part and parcel of that letting go and that grief of sitting it was a kind of a, a, a weird one really like I actually felt quite 
almost giddy about it to start off with because I was actually getting to do a mum thing. Yeah. It was kind of the only mum thing I could do. So I was actually kind of quite excited about it in a way. And you still get all the hormones. You don't realise... Because obviously when you've got your baby there and you're breastfeeding, you know that you feel this flood of love for your baby. But you don't know whether it's looking at them as the flood of love or the process of the breast milk and I can tell you the majority of it is the breast milk so as that's coming out that flood of hormones because I was so content in that moment and then I knew when I was done for a session because I would just very suddenly get extremely sleepy and a lot of the time I would literally fall asleep with the pump Mm. still on because I think obviously that's nature's way you know it makes you feel because you've been woken up in the middle of the night and then you feel this flood of love and you're like oh it's fine darling I don't mind you just waking me up and then your body says right that's enough it's time to go to sleep. Yeah. So you don't realise how much of that is just those hormones naturally it's do that within, for you. It's within you, yeah. Yeah, and it was good because I felt very content and I needed that, but I also needed the routine. So I set myself kind of alarms that I would get up and I would do it. And I was getting up in the middle of the night and I was doing it to keep mm. the kind of flow going. And I needed that structure because otherwise I would have forgotten what day it was and yeah. I was so kind of bereft. Like, yeah. I had nothing that I really wanted to live for and it gave me you know like a purpose and being able to allow somebody else's baby to survive because they had something that that mum didn't happen to have yeah. that they needed was necessary yeah and if you'd gone through the official milk bank at the hospital but also through the human milk for human babies facebook group which i know is an incredible resource for people who are looking for milk or want to donate milk yeah Um, and i loved getting pictures she had this little kind of machine with tubes that went around her neck and then she kind of had it taped to her own boob with my milk in it so she sent me pictures of that as well which was just so she was she was able to sort of replicate the feeding process but it was with your milk oh that has got me going i love that yeah it was brilliant and um, even when um so Bex, the bereavement midwife, um, said after me, after I decided to do it, that she then wanted to start asking other people um, when they're in the same situation, because she tends to be people's first point of call, generally. Um, but obviously she works kind of her own hours, so if it's mm-hmm. outside the hours, it has to be other people. So she's comfortable enough being able to ask and discuss it now, after me, and but the other staff weren't necessary. So she had decided to make a training video. So she contacted Marion at the Southwest Milk Bank, who remembered me, um, and she contacted me to see if I would be part of the video so that I could kind of explain my reasons for doing it and how it made me feel and um, and, and kind of at what part of the process I thought it would be good to bring that in. So I said I needed to have known sooner. So yes. it needed to have been much earlier in the process. Um, you know, not that long after we got there, we needed to have known that it was an option, that I could yeah. have done that. I could have turned off my milk, you know, or just let kind of nature take its course and let it kind of dissipate on its own. So I, I said I needed to know that sooner. And I said the process needs to be easier. They needed to have the contact for the Southwest Milk Bank there so that you could have like a leaflet that you Mm. could know straight away. Because I went and searched for it on my own, but a lot of other people, newly bereaved, Mm. not knowing when things wouldn't. Well, it sounds like you were incredibly proactive and that's what you needed to be in that moment, but everyone's going to react to it differently. So the fact that you, your kind of main strategy initially was, right, what can I do that's practical? Yeah. That led you on that path. But yeah, if it's not there in front of you, how are you going to know about it? Exactly. And people just don't. A lot of people, you know, have said, I didn't even know that was a thing. And then um, the other kind of practical thing I said they needed to do really was um, do the blood test at the hospital. 
because they could say, look, even if you change your mind, we can just discard the, the, the blood. It's fine. Yeah. But if you decide you want to do it, we've got it. We can then send it. That makes so much sense because you would have had to have gone to a different facility yeah. where you then encounter medical staff who maybe aren't yeah. as clued up. So and yeah, it, it was difficult because it wasn't long after having a C-section that I then had to kind of waddle into the practice and yeah. have more blood taken. And I had so many holes in me anyway because I'd had the gestational diabetes tests and then I'd had more blood tests the following week and then I'd mm. had cannulas everywhere and um, I had them in my hands and in yeah. my arms and everything I'd had so many holes in me by that point I really didn't need any more no so it would have been helpful if it could have been done earlier yeah. in the process so, so kind of alongside the bereavement midwife and the lady from the milk um bank so did you put together a video between yourselves to train other midwives was it yes so, yeah so bex is doing one to train nurses and midwives oh. initially at the ruh and then it will go kind of out if it's successful it will kind of go out to the rest of the mm. um the whole of the southwest and then i haven't seen it yet mine was mm. only like a snippet hers is like most of it um and um it, it was just literally just asking me you know when do you think it would be a good time to do it how did it make you feel mm. um you know what made you want to do it and things like that so that people know that it's not kind of taboo that actually it was a helpful mm. part of the process for me and you know it was a positive yeah um in there was nothing else positive at that time I had a positive but also um I'm quite control freak so it was something I could control in, yeah. in a time where there was nothing else I could control at all and because Bodie had was with the medical examiner at that time um I couldn't even start with funeral arrangements either because we didn't know yeah. how long before we came back from the med- medical examiner either yeah. so it was just something that I could focus on yeah well I think it's amazing that you've done it and also maybe helped to open up that conversation with other people who maybe didn't even like you say didn't know it was a thing and maybe actually maybe they don't maybe they're not interested in one job but maybe they actually would find a lot of peace in the process of doing that so yeah that's incredible you mentioned obviously Bodhi being taken for his post-mortem that must have been really distressing not knowing what had happened and like you say not being able to make those arrangements solidly how do you go from one day thinking you know you've got 10 weeks left until your baby's arriving to suddenly having to do all this planning for something that you should never have to plan it's really hard (laughs) to be honest i spent quite a few days doing nothing but crying um uh, we kept receiving you know phone calls and visits and (laughs) random boxes of brownies and cookies in the post and stuff and it's just it's a really hard mindset to have to put yourself in you know I'm a very practical person but at that time there was no practicalities whatsoever mm-hmm. I'm grateful that I'm practical because I'd made a load of frozen meals the week before so we didn't have to think about yeah. eating which is really good but we just had to kind of start talking about obviously what was going to happen next and we you know, had to contact female directors I remember ringing my mother-in-law and saying I don't know what I'm supposed to do it hadn't been that long before that she'd my mother-in-law lost her mum and my father-in-law lost his mum not that long before that as well so I knew that it was all quite recent so I said you know who did you speak to like what do I do and kind of rang around which is a very strange thing to have to do yeah um and to have to explain and it's quite a hard thing to have to explain on the phone absolutely like what happened and that is when I find out that you don't pay for babies' funerals 
So, oh, right. Yeah, so some of them they will charge you for certain things. So sometimes they'll charge you for like the car, sometimes they'll charge you for like the celebrant. Um, but there's like a government uh, scheme where they pay for things like the casket and the wow. actual um, cremation or burial itself. Um, so that's paid directly to the funeral directors. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a government thing. So I think because. Um, you're treated differently depending on what stage of pregnancy it is. So I believe it's 26 weeks. After 26 weeks, its classes are stillbirth rather than a miscarriage. Okay. Um, and things kind of change legally past that point. So yeah. I think if it's before 26 weeks, its classes are miscarriage because it wouldn't be a viable fetus. Yeah. So I think, I, I don't think things are paid for at that stage. I mean, we didn't have a birth certificate because he hadn't been alive outside of me. Okay. So if he'd been born and then lived for one minute, and then died, we would have had a birth certificate and a death certificate. Because he died first, he was still going to get a still birth certificate. So it's a okay. different thing, kind of all together. And all of these things, you know, this is all new to me. I don't know any of this. No. And well, we're having to deal with things like going to the registry office to register his death. Yeah. And it's just an awful That's thing. a barrage of tasks that yeah. are yes, they need doing because it's it's just life that you have to do these things. But they are just all so utterly it's like just going on a wheel of reliving yeah. what's happened to you with Constantly. every practical task you have to do people are very good though the registry office um, i'd spoken to them in advance and they um we went in a different door from other people so we didn't have to go past some people they were very aware that there would be people there registering live babies so they made a point of making sure there was no one else booked in at the same time um and you know having us in a different door they allowed us to park on the premises where we just had to walk up a ramp because obviously i was still quite fresh from surgery yeah you know they were they were very good but obviously it has to be a very formal process um you know you have to have the right paperwork you have to say the right things you know it has to be kind of very formal but they were they were very very good like you never really know how these things are going to go no but yeah they they thought it through very well they're obviously used to dealing with it fortunately unfortunately yeah once you'd had Bodie's funeral which i imagine was incredibly difficult how do you start to move forward with your life and how do you do you find that there are just daily ways that you think of him and, and honor him and that's kind of yeah how you get by so yeah i mean the funeral was rough um we had written our own things for the funeral as well which is celebrant red i picked our own songs and things like that um there was a lot of laughter as well on his funeral day day which is nice we wore big floral shirts and not your cow onesie then no not my cow onesie (laughs) (laughs) we had an inflatable palm tree at the front of the um the um crematorium and like a little dub the pug in a hawaiian shirt and it was it was a it was a good day and you know in a lot of ways but a funeral is always like a changing point in any kind of bereavement because up to that point you have to be practical and then after that point you can fall apart it's always always the same with these things it was nice to be able to see so many people on the day. We hugged a lot of people, which we hadn't done for a long time because it was what lockdown. Were, what was the situation with his funeral? So we weren't actually in a lockdown at the time, but we were only like 20 people there. Okay. Whenever you invite people to a funeral, there's always kind of grey area people. We basically, you were either definitely going to be there or we didn't invite you. That was it. There was no grey area people because there's too many grey yeah. area people. You just have to invite the very basic. So I think we ended up with some like 15 people yeah. there. Um, 
and it was nice. We went to a pub around the corner afterwards, and we had kind of between tea, and we sat and we laughed, and there was lots of hugging, lots of crying, and it was, it was, it was a nice kind of day. And then the day after, everything is just flat. Yeah. Um, and I wondered then whether it's time to start moving the baby stuff out of the house. But I decided against it. I said no, we'll get to it in our own time. We kept the door to the nursery shut for a long time. I think it was probably a good six months before that door was reopened, really much at all. I then started planning. I think I'd, I'd already started planning a little bit. I hadn't started doing anything about doing a kind of memory box. So we have a chest, um, and it's got his ashes in it. Um, we do want to scatter them at some point. We just haven't done it yet. Sam really wants to, to kind of let him go free. Um, yeah. He wants to scatter him at sea. I selfishly am always going to keep a little bit of him. Yeah. Um, um, so we started planning that. So I have quite a few different boxes. So I've got like a box inside it that's got kind of um, some cards and stuff. Most cards and letters went with him. I can't remember when I started. I wrote like a book for myself from the first minute of the pregnancy all the way up until wow. um, he died. Um, and after I wrote that book and it was harrowing I think I pretty much wrote it mostly in one sitting as well and I, I think I cried so much and I think I ate an entire box of brownies <laughs> at the time of writing it so that's when I started kind of putting all that kind of stuff together and picking which clothes were going to stay in that box like ones that I'd bought that I had him very much in mind for yeah ones that had been at the hospital with us um I had disposable uh, not disposable reusable nappies um and um, ones that had been very kind of for him um, as well that they'd kind of that went, went into the box like nobody else would ever be able to wear yes. them kind of thing so that's kind of how I then dealt with that kind of transition stage I did have a few visitors um, initially um, because we weren't in lockdown but then we went into a lockdown on Halloween which was yes, only nine days later yeah. oh. so at that point I then went back to be completely on my own and I did a lot of crying I remember having a moment when I thought I didn't know if I could carry on. And then I made a decision. I made the decision that I loved him so much. I had to carry on. The only way to kind of... The only way that people would remember him is if I was him. So I decided to make sure that I lived a good life. Um, that I didn't... <laughs> I've made a decision to live well yeah. and to talk about him and to share him with people um, and it was a very definite decision it was a very quick decision as well um, I knew I was extremely depressed as you would be but the only time the only way people would know about him was if I were here and Sam were here and um, you know it was rough and a lot of couples, after it happens, they kind of drift apart. We didn't. We became a lot closer. Um, every awful thing that happened to us in our lives, we become a lot closer. We were very supportive of each other. We spent a lot of time crying together and talking together and talking about him and looking at pictures. And, yeah. um, I started raising money. That was another way that I needed to... Um, to do for me so um again i think it was on my birthday i started raising money um you know with the facebook birthday appeal thing yeah so i started raising money for the forget me not sweet at um well it was a forever friends appeal but when yes. it, when the money was given to them they said where do you want it to go and i said specifically to forget me not sweet 
and I raised money for Sands as well. And I think in total it was about £7,000 wow. we raised in about three weeks for the two of them. So the Sands appeal that was on at the time was to walk, I think it was um, it was the distance it would be to the moon and back. So Yes, I think I remember seeing yeah, something so about I, that. Because we'd read him the, to Love You to the Moon and Back. Yeah. Um, and I'd already bought kind of stuff for him that was Love You to the Moon and Back. So it kind of was quite a prominent thing in my mind. So I actually ended up, I did walk that much later on to make up for the money that people had given yeah. us, even though I wasn't walking it. Um, so that was another thing that I kind of did to kind of ease that transition um, of things. Um, but yeah, to be honest, there's not really much you can do. Um, no. I, I sought out our own counselling. So um, I sought out Petals, which is a... Um, uh, it's, it's, it's a charity specifically for kind of baby loss at any stage at all right. um, from chemical pregnancy all the way up to stillbirth or neonatal death uh, death, or even um, um, things like Edwards where they can okay. live kind of like a year or so so it's any so kind that's of called stage. petals did petals, you say? yeah okay. so I sought that out myself um, because um, on the NHS you cannot get any counselling until you've had three losses in a row yes I'm aware of that yeah so um, we actually then um, we had another miscarriage this January. So I'm really um, sorry. Uh, very early though, very early. But it meant that we could qualify again for for petals. So yeah. I actually we went back to them and we had the same um, counselor that we'd had previously, um, which was amazing. She was brilliant, and um, she, like for her, it was really good to be able to see us kind of so much further down the line and things. And, yeah. um, well, so, I'm, I'm just making a note of them so that yeah. I can share Yeah, they were amazing. That. Absolutely yeah. amazing. They really, really are. And I've raised money for them since as well. I did another walk, um, which raised money for them um, as well. Um, I've done I've done a few kind of yeah. little fundraising things. And so I started making other decisions to kind of raise money as well. So I, I want uh, for, to do things for charity in his name. So yeah. that Christmas, I bought quite a lot of stuff for the feed bank. And yeah. that was kind of in his name. I donated... Um, bras um, and underwear to charities uh, where they go to um, developing countries um, for mm. women who don't kind of have access to things um, uh, I, I did stuff for um, period poverty donated stuff for that and all of this is kind of all in his name yeah. and I, I, most of the stuff that I, I do is I always do it kind of in, in Bodhi's name really and so I kind of set myself like mm. once a month I would do something like that I'm in so in awe of the way that you are keeping Bodhi alive in terms of the things you're doing in his name, the fact that you're even talking to me right now about him. I think it's so important. Do you find that people are too afraid to talk to you about him or say his name or, you know, talk about the fact that you're his mum? And how how has that been in terms of communicating about him? It's It's a really... It's such a strange thing because some people just don't know what to say and you feel their tension and you feel the elephant in the room and they just don't say anything there were quite a lot of my patients who saw me pregnant and some of them a lot of the other staff at both my practices were amazing and they would tell people what happened so if someone said to them oh how's Andrew's baby they would say oh I need to tell you I need to explain to you but there's always some that slip through the net so I would have people come in and go how's your baby and then you have to explain it and that is awful and then there's two very different it, it seems to be two very different types of people then they either shut down and they just don't mention anything or the ones that go oh my gosh I'm so so sorry do you want to talk about him so and again even within that there's two different types of people they're like I'm really really sorry and then they kind of stop um or they want to know everything about him they want to kind of talk with you mm. and um 
I, I would always prefer people at least acknowledge it. There are friends that we have not ever spoken to again since right. because they just didn't even acknowledge it um, that it had mm-hmm. happened and then were never kind of available to us. Um, there's a We regained a new hope in humanity and most of our friends because they were just amazing and just there for us constantly and ringing us and texting us and just sending food and gifts and even people I haven't seen for decades that I went to school with that I wasn't even that close with just sending me ransom gifts um people writing me letters I had patients write me letters um kids friends draw us pictures and like there was just so much such an outpouring of kind of love from people but a lot of people just don't say anything and a lot of people will say things like I don't know what to say. I'm like, but you've said that. Yeah. Which is more than somebody else. It's acknowledging the yeah. discomfort and not knowing yeah. how to approach the conversation exactly. rather because, than just ignoring it. Yeah, some people are so uncomfortable about not knowing what to say that they just avoid us altogether. And that I don't really understand mm. at all. Um, I know it's hard to talk about it and I know that people are afraid of upsetting me, but you're not upsetting me because you're reminding me because I didn't forget that my son died. No. I know that all of the time. But by you mentioning him, you've just told me that you remember him, which is more important for me than anything else. Because mm. at the end of the day, all of us will just become a memory. And the more he's talked about, the more people's memories he's in. Mm. So if I don't ever talk about him again, the only people that remember him is the people who already know him. Whereas if I talk about him consistently for the rest of my life, there are a lot of other people who know about him. Mm. And I know that other people have come to me with things that they've had since. My sister, for example, a friend of hers, um, had a reduced movement, decided to go to hospital because she'd, my sister had told her. As she said, otherwise she thinks she would have just gone to bed. Yeah. Um, instead, she went to the hospital and she ended up having to have an emergency section and they had to revive the baby. So if it hadn't been for mm. my sister talking to her about him she might have lost her little girl as well. Yeah. So I know that the more that I share and other people share, that it will save other babies. Yeah. Um, because people will think, no, I'm not going to just sit on that. I'm not going to, you know, just go to bed. You know, kicks really count. Mm. If you don't feel it, you need to speak to somebody. Um, but also I know that people who are going through similar things, miscarriage or infertility, they will um, come out of the woodwork and speak to me on Facebook because of the fact that they know I'm open yeah. and that I can be a support for them. And I'm better at being stronger for other people than I am for myself. So yeah. for me, being able to support other people um, through the grieving process helped my grieving process. You know, I started learning counselling training and it helped me understand my own things and it helped Sam and I relate to each other because we... I knew what part of the process we were going through at that stage and kind of how to deal with it. So being able to help somebody else because they know that I'm willing to talk about it was... Healing for you. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. If there is somebody listening who, who has come across this because they are in that moment where it's very new, they have just found out that they have lost their baby, what kind of advice or what resources would you recommend to them in that initial moment of this is how you can help yourself with I don't know whether it's a charitable resource or anything that you would say to somebody who's in that position use everything available to you lean on your friends lean on your family as much as you can your bereavement midwife will be the most amazing person for you and she will support you for a very very long time I had three months of um, daily or weekly if not daily phone calls from her she was fantastic you know that's very you wouldn't get that in any other 
kind of service. Um, Sands were fantastic from day one um, with resources for you. You know, use anything that's available. You will find very quickly that you have a lot of other friends who've been through similar things. And, you know, I had a, a friend that I went to school with. I'm not very close with her anymore, but she was one of the biggest rocks for me through everything. Um, you know, people like that are around you, um, so use them and talk to mm-hmm. them, but just don't be on your own. You, know, you don't have to go through this on your own. You don't have to keep your baby to yourself. You know, you, you talk to people and just know that you're loved. That's all you can really do. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I can't thank you enough. Honestly. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, I can't thank you enough, honestly. It's, um, conversations like this don't happen often enough and they're important and I'm just really privileged that you shared it with me. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you for listening. <laughs> well, I cried during the recording, I cried during the edit, and I cried during scheduling the social media posts for this one. But, as well as the tears of devastation for Andrea and Sam, I also cried tears of bittersweet beauty and at how amazing the human spirit can be in surviving such grief and trauma. If you or someone you know needs support surrounding baby loss, stillbirth or neonatal death, I would recommend Sand's charity, Tommy's and also Aching Arms, which Andrea mentioned. Thank you once again, Andrea, for sharing your story with me. I feel very lucky to have been welcomed into your home to hear about Bodhi. That's all for this week. Join me next week for another amazing birth story. In the meantime, if you would like to connect with me, I'm on Instagram at Real Birth Podcast, Facebook under The Real Birth Podcast, and you can email me, I'm lucy at realbirth.co.uk. Thanks for listening, guys, and I will see you again soon. Bye.